Well, hello and welcome to the Catherine Plano podcast, where we share tips, tricks, tools, and strategies that you can implement in your life for massive improvements. Every week, we have change instigators, compelling creators, and interesting humans who are breaking the cycle of convention and redefining success one mission at a time. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning, connection, and resilience into your life. Now let's jump into your weekly dose of practical goodness. The more a kid has gone through trauma as an adult, then the more there's a risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, stroke, hypertension, of course, depression, anxiety, addiction. We know that. But all these other things, um, reproductive disorders, dementia, learning disabilities. And the list is so long that you start to think, well, what what isn't made worse by trauma? And trauma just makes a lot of things worse. It, it increases risk significantly. Um, of autoimmune disorders, such as lupus, MS, Graves disease, things like that. So there's something that goes on. The, the neurological changes that happen early in development from neglect and abuse can have this downstream effect. This riveting conversation with trauma expert Anna Runkel, the crappy childhood fairy, we delve into the profound impact of trauma and its ripple effects on our lives. Anna shares her personal insights, highlighting how trauma can lead to dysregulation, affecting our relationships and decision-making. She introduces the intriguing concept that clutter extends beyond physical spaces to infiltrate our thoughts and emotions. Unpacking this clutter is the key to personal growth and forging healthier connections. Anna also offers practical exercises and emphasizes the significance of re-regulation in the journey of overcoming trauma. Tune in for this engaging discussion that promises valuable insights into trauma, dysregulation and the transformative path to healing. Welcome again to another week of having amazing guests on our show. And depending on where you are in the world, whether you're um, it's afternoon, morning, or evening, we have another amazing guest for you. And her name is Anna Runkle. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. So the way that we love to start the show is we always love to ask our guests, what inspired you to do what you do today? Well, I teach people about how to heal from childhood trauma. And the way I learned that is because it was necessary for me to do it. I grew up in a commune in Berkeley, California in the late 60s, early 70s, and things were really getting crazy <laughs> in the culture here and definitely in my family. I grew up in a family that there was a lot of drug addiction and alcoholism and all the stuff that goes with that. So I, I was very affected by it, and I was a very tough and resilient kid, and about my late 20s, stuff started to get harder than I could really manage. And so at that time, I managed to find a technique that helped me to feel okay. And over the years had to learn 
had to teach myself how to live life, how to use silverware. I, I literally didn't know how to use a fork and a knife together. And uh, we were kind of feral in the commune. <laughs> and so I taught myself uh, how to function in the world. And I've ended up creating a whole program for people who have childhood PTSD and who need to find a way to work on it. And many, many people who have childhood PTSD don't respond to conventional treatments like talk therapy or medication. And I'm one of them. So left to figure it out for myself. I, I, I feel very lucky that I found what does work for me. So that's what I teach. And it's just been tremendously successful. So for those that don't know, what is child PTSD? Well, that's a colloquial word um, that everybody, I use the term childhood PTSD because everybody instinctively sort of knows it's like a trauma wounds from childhood the the clinical term is complex PTSD, and that's uh, the kind of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that comes from chronic ongoing exposure to stress, usually during childhood, but not necessarily. But the content that I make is a lot of, is, it's for people who grew up in families where there was abuse, neglect, addiction, poverty, bullying, you know, great difficulty that went on and on and on. So you were saying that um, it's the way that you went about it and you found your own methodology and your own way about it. Uh, what were some of those steps that you took to helping yourself recover from that? Well, I didn't know what I was trying to heal at first. I just knew that I wasn't okay. And uh, I had been to 11 different therapists in my 20s. And I was on some levels very, you know, doing okay. I I did manage to get boyfriends and I did manage to have jobs and uh, friends, but something happened one night uh, when I was just about when I turned 30, I was in a perfect storm of trauma. Sometimes it, you know, it rains, it pours. And uh, I'd sort of lost the love of my life. I was beaten unconscious randomly on the street and my mother died and it all happened in a very short time frame. And so it's really easy to see now I had PTSD. I couldn't, I just melted down after that. And I had a broken jaw, I had broken teeth, but the doctor said, well, your brain is fine. You know, we did a CAT scan, your brain's fine. The therapist was like, come on, let's talk about what happened. And where I live, there's a lot of, you get, you get money. If you, if you're the victim of a violent crime, the state wants to help you pay for therapy. So I had unlimited funds for therapy, started going three times a week, but I started getting worse, not better. And for years, I thought it was because I was some sort of really defective person who not only had problems and depression and anxiety and struggles in relationships, but when I went to therapy, I would feel worse. And I would just be so rattled every appointment I ever had that I, I couldn't even drive a car and I would just cry. And I found myself like trying to hide from the therapist how bad it was. I got to the point I was afraid I was going to get locked up if she knew how much I, I was suffering. And, um, and so I got to the end of my rope and one day I was giving a ride to somebody, some acquaintance of mine. And I don't know why I decided to tell her, but I told her that the next day I was probably going to take my own life. And she said, Oh, honey, I know how that is. Why don't you come in? We'll have some tea. And it was when I think back on that, I just think, wow, <laughs> like somebody was looking out for me. And I asked just the right person. And she was somebody who had had a very rough life. She had lived on the streets. She had been an alcoholic. Alcohol was not my problem, which at the time I thought, I wish there was that simple of an explanation why I have such a hard time. But 
at that time with PTSD, I had a really hard time regulating my emotions. I would get really angry. I'd get really sad. It had only been like a month or two since the assault, but I I just didn't have any help that helped. And I couldn't read a book. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even read a paragraph. My focus was just so messed up and I couldn't use a telephone. I, I, I would have panic attacks trying to cross the street. And, you know, now with everything we know, it's just funny that between a doctor and a therapist, they were just like, no, we see nothing wrong here. It's fine. You're just stressed out. But it wasn't. I, I had a neurological thing going on where the act, the trauma that I had been through activated probably a lot of old trauma that I had compartmentalized pretty well. A lot of us do, you know, my childhood was pretty rough, but I was like this good kid. I was going to be okay. I was going to do everything right. And uh, it all just got out and I was falling apart. So my friend, we stayed up all night and she showed me some techniques that she had been shown by, by this person inside of Alcoholics Anonymous doing something extra special there of writing like every day, twice a day about fears and resentments and doing a little prayer to have them removed. And I was like, prayer, oh, and she's like, well, you know, you're going to be dead tomorrow, so you might as well try. (laughs) So I used her technique and much to my happy surprise, I started to feel better. I felt better enough that night that I went home and got some sleep. That was a miracle for me at that. I was so agitated back then. I slept and then she said, call me tomorrow, do some writing, you know, read it to me what you wrote. So I did the technique again. It's a very specific technique. And uh, and then I, I within a couple of weeks, not only was I no longer depressed or showing PTSD symptoms, but I had a level of focus that I'd really never had before in my life. Maybe when I was a kid, who knows? But but uh, I was I was radically transformed by using this technique. And we know now, you know, there is research now that this was that writing is a way you can process emotional stuff without re-triggering dysregulation. And I'll tell you what I mean by dysregulation in a minute. Dysregulation was not a known thing back then. A little bit, they would use the word about emotional dysregulation. And I certainly had that where you're just like, it's too much, you know, you're just too sad, too angry, too, too anxious, you know, it's all too much or going flat. And um, so there was that, but what was going on with me was just not something that had a name back then. We're only talking the nineties. So a lot has happened since then. I continued with the techniques. I had a lot of life lessons to learn. But I, what I would say that the, my work as Crappy Childhood Fairy is very focused on you learn to deal with neurological dysregulation. That's the missing piece. And it is a wound. It's a consequence of developmental trauma. When you're little, if you're neglected, there's abuse, there's intense stress. It just won't stop. It affects your brain development. And when I first read about it, which, you know, this started coming out, it was Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, Pete Walker, CPTSD from Surviving to Thriving. So about 19, I mean, 19, in uh, 2015, 20, 2015 or so, I read those books because um, once again, I was struggling. I was getting very, very dysregulated. And I read the books and finally I read the name for what I have, complex PTSD and neurological dysregulation. So a lot of people who watch my YouTube channel uh, resonate with dysregulation and that literally thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands will say on my channel, this is the first time anyone has described what it's like to be me. And we were all walking around thinking we were the only person 
But if you had this kind of trauma when you were young, it's not uncommon that when you get stressed out now, it causes these strange symptoms of like bad coordination, your handwriting gets wonky, uh, clumsy hands, feeling numb, emotional dysregulation, too much emotion or going flat, spacing out, ADHD type symptoms. So these are all really, really normal things that happen to perfectly normal people who have gone through an abnormal childhood. So the basic techniques that I was shown that time to just sort of feel better turned out to have this amazing neurological benefit. And I get, I just use the techniques and use the techniques. And finally, you know, it was whatever it was, you know, 20 years later, I had a name for what it was. Things clicked together. I started a blog. I had been teaching people one-on-one. I taught hundreds, probably 300 women worked one-on-one with them uh, before I was crappy childhood fairy. So that's when Crappy Childhood Fairy was born. I had to do something bigger and more public with it. I love the name. How did you come up with Crappy Childhood Fairy? That's amazing. When I first, I wanted to do a blog to show people the technique because I would get asked, I I would go to Al-Anon. It's a 12-step program for families of alcoholics, which I certainly qualified for. So that's a lot where I learned how to work with with other people. But uh <laughs> It can get so serious and heavy. And so I started this blog and first it sounded, it it was reading like a public health clinic pamphlet or something. Sometimes we get very traumatized and it's terrible, isn't it? And then I thought, oh, this is so boring. Not only wouldn't I want to read this, I don't even want to write it. And I started drawing cartoons and I just, you know, there used to be these cartoons when I was a kid called Fractured Fairing Tales. I don't know if you had them in Australia, but this little fairy, like with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth would come out and go, ding, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was uh it was just like this little image i was like yeah somebody like that somebody who's like you know what you need to do <laughs> i guess the sort of fairy i always wish i had and i you know i was i was in my 50s when i started this and i uh my my boys were teenagers at the time and i came out and i said you guys i think i'm gonna start a youtube channel and i think i'm gonna i'm gonna call it crappy childhood fairy and they were like no mom no 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 mom that's don't don't do it <laughs> so I, I, proved, it. I, uh, I proved I could do it <laughs> absolutely you have you have and you know and as you were uh, sharing some of that information I was thinking some of that's some of the stuff that I do as well and I um I've looked into trauma as well because uh for me from my understanding there's little trauma big trauma and every child in some way shape or form has gone to some sort of trauma so what is that the difference so what are some of the symptoms people look for when it's actually ptsd what are some of the symptoms that because you when you're talking about some of that stuff like um uh sometimes my hand goes numb sometimes my hand almost goes like it's um it's it's i can't feel it i can't i can't even describe it but some of the things that you were talking about i've experienced but i've never ever looked into dysregulation or associated with any I mean I've gone through my own childhood trauma but I've never ever looked at that as PTSD or anything well um complex PTSD you know there's the fact is in the United States it's not even in the manual yet and recognized it is in Australia and Europe um but the the symptoms there's a lot of debate about you know what symptoms fall into that category and which ones go into that honestly I don't I don't worry that much about what they say about it. 
I'm very clear about the symptoms. And I would have thought it was just me in some sort of unique situation, except that I have like 550,000 subscribers on YouTube who just every day are just telling me every day, that's what I have. We're on to something. And so nowadays, a lot of um, researchers and therapists and doctors, they come to the channel to refer their patients and also to better understand like, what are the consequences of trauma? So there's what they say it is. And there's what I experience it to be that I have been teaching. And so what I would say it is, is um, it's fundamentally, there's a neurological injury and it's, it, there, there's certainly a there are psychological wounds. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of the people in my audience are, uh, they really struggle with friendship and connection with people and romantic relationships and so those that's part of our development was supposed to happen when we were little and getting nurtured and maybe our mother would hold us skin to skin, look in our eyes, respond. So when a little baby goes, da, 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 and the mother will say, da, 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 or the dad. And, uh, and that is a super important piece of brain development. So if you're neglected, if you're left crying, <laughs> if people don't really, they're, if they're high and can't really, they're not really attuned to you, then this development starts falling off. And the consequence of that is so far reaching. It's, it's, and we can't be too, you know, I'm careful not to be too specific, like what's the cause and what's the effect. There's a lot of stuff that happens in my family. There was a lot of neglect that peppered with sometimes, you know, perfectly loving care, you know, and especially from like grandmothers and things, or my mom would sober up and she would be great. And then she wouldn't be, and then she wouldn't come home for a month. And that fear and um, the sense, no sense of security. And I've also noticed, and I don't know if this is as true about me as I've seen it. I've seen it in so many of the people I, I answer letters. I'm like an advice columnist um, on YouTube. And a lot of people write to me and say, well, you know, nobody paid attention to me. They didn't really understand what I was interested in or what was special about me. And they found me annoying. And now I'm in a relationship with somebody and they never text me back, but I just can't stop thinking about them. And that is the pattern where the survival technique of childhood of coping with not being loved or attended to properly turns into a superpower that I call crap fit, where you go, that's okay. You don't have to love me or call me back or anything. I will love you and I will make it all okay and I'll do that. And I just see it over and over and over and over again. And that crap fit is the word I made up where you fit yourself to crap, to just terrible, unacceptable behavior and people. And so that's one of the patterns. So a lot of what I had been told by therapists is you're trying to recreate your childhood. And I always thought, I don't think so. I think I'm like fighting like hell to have a better life than I started with. And that's a fact. And most people are. People are really trying. We're not trying to recreate our childhood. There is something called repetition compulsion. But what that looks like from the outside is not what it feels like on the inside. And I would say what happens is, is that under stress, let's say with choosing a partner, that whole process gets so stressful. We now know like when a kid who was traumatized as a kid, as an adult, when you go under stress, left front cortex starts to go dim. There's not a lot of activity there. That's where you should be reasoning. Right front cortex it starts really lighting up. And that's where emotions are happening. And that's a lot what it's like getting into a relationship. I think even for people who are not traumatized, it's very emotional, not very rational. But with PTSD, it can be critically out of whack. And so we get things like 
you know, having unprotected sex. There are things people don't talk about, uh, but like unintended pregnancy is much more common for people who grew up traumatized. It's very hard to like keep their wits about them and make good decisions about who to sleep with, when to sleep with them, how to manage that safely. And so, uh, you know, every negative consequence. There's other consequences of trauma that are um, well-documented. The more a kid has gone through trauma as an adult, then the more there's a risk of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, stroke, hypertension, of course, depression, anxiety, addiction. We know that, but all these other things, um, reproductive disorders, dementia, learning disabilities. And the list is so long that you start to think, well, what what isn't made worse by trauma? And trauma just makes a lot of things worse. It, it increases risk significantly um, of autoimmune disorders, such as lupus, MS, Graves disease, things like that. So there's something that goes on. The, the neurological changes that happen early in development from neglect and abuse can have this downstream effect. And the really good news is if you can learn re-regulation, you can start to turn around those risks. And the goal would be to have normal level of risk. And so it's not a it's not like a certainty that you would get any of these problems, but the risk is elevated until you can learn to start getting re-regulated. So doctors are always like, oh, you have to learn stress reduction, breathe. Well, if you have CPTSD, breathe, you're just like, oh my God, you know, like give me something I can actually use. It's not enough that, you know, hey, you need to breathe or you need to relax or you need to calm down. You need concrete tools for how to start unpacking that wound up mind of CPTSD. That's, I always call it a bag of cats. <laughs> There's a lot going on. And I would say, knowing what I know now through my experience of recovering from it, that naming the fears and resentful, the fearful and resentful thoughts, and then having a process, a formal process to release those is critical to starting to have some peace. You can't just like think your way out of that level of stress, that level of PTSD mind, you know, just tell yourself not to do it. It doesn't, it's not strong enough. I, I love so. the fact you talk about naming it because I always say when you name mm -hmm. it, you can tame it. Cause I do a lot of journaling. And mm -hmm. so when I actually give it a name, I'm able to remove it out of that unconscious part of my mind into the right. conscious part of my mind and allow it okay. to take form on paper. Is that, is that the right way to go about it? Well, it's a very specific technique and it's different than journaling and that when you're journaling, you're sort of recording things because you might want to look for patterns or save it for later. In this, it's a dump and it's, um, yeah, it's got a, there's a, a thing that you write at the end so that every time you do it, the whole point of it is to release it or ask it to be removed if you're higher power oriented. That's how I learned it. And so you're writing it not to list it or analyze it, but to let it go. And when you let it go, it doesn't mean that you're not going to think about it again or do anything about it. You might, you might not. And I would say maybe 80% of it does tend to just sort of fly away. It's nothing really. And some of it comes into focus as something that you might need to act on. So what I, you know, when I sit down in the evening and I'm going to write and meditate um, and we follow it with meditation, 20 minutes of meditation to rest your mind. It was just this very simple techniques I I learned and they work so well for me. And, um, and I just, I'm just here to say like, I've, you know, thousands of people have found it incredibly helpful to do it. So simple. 
And uh, when I first started, people were like, oh, well, a lot of people call it journaling. And I say, no, if you want to journal, journal. Or they say, but shouldn't I be listing the positive things too? And I'm like, no, that's for another time. If that's helpful to you, this is where you take those fearful, resentful thoughts and you, you, there's a format, there's a structure. I have a free course. So I'm sure we can share a link with everybody. If anybody wants to take it, I teach exactly how to do it. If you, the, the reason I'm such a stickler about like do it as taught is because it, it can very easily without the technique turn into just kind of a rant. They used to think that like if you yelled and punched pillows, you would feel better and less angry, but you actually feel more angry. And same thing with writing stuff. There's a risk of just sort of amping it up. And so this is a technique that definitely gets it de-amplified and onto paper and released so that you have at least a few hours of like clear headedness. And you have a few hours every day, a couple times a day, and your whole life can be different. The inspiration, the peace, the getting back your circadian rhythm, just there's so much that is lost through neurological dysregulation that can start to come back if you can give it that space. Uh, we'll definitely have that in the show notes. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about some a process that I just went through myself and those that know me very well. Um, I used to practice forgiveness all the time. And what I what I was noticing is every time I was forgiving someone about a particular thing or a particular event, I was bringing forward that 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 emotion, that anger, and and how they um, I was deceived, let's say. But the moment I let go of forgiveness, because all it did was bring up the pain of the past and of the person. The moment I accepted for what it was, I was because I understood that me as an individual. Uh, even at a soul level, there there was a purpose and a learning in the process. It changed everything, changed everything the way that I, so it kind of reminds me of what you're saying about just um, uh, letting go of those emotions. So like not, no, with no attachment, no judgment. No, I and mean, that's just what I'm, I'm picking up on as you're talking through when you're writing it down. It's not about being methodical, just allow it to just a brain dump, just allow it to flow on paper. Yeah. So and what what I'm understanding is um so depending on and I, I'm thinking about I'm sure our, our, our audience are thinking the same thing but for example let's have a look at if you have a look at a, a repeating pattern in your life whether you said like relationships or whatever that may be rather than most people wouldn't even think oh it, it must be childhood trauma most people would just go oh, I'm really crap at relationships so for those people that are having those repeating patterns. Is that uh, wise to say, well, what kind of childhood did you have um, for them to even like look into or not really? I, I think people who have been sexually abused or hit by their parents or they were abandoned, I think they know it perfectly well. Um, but what's new is what, what symptoms are now known to be associated with that. Like we may have been attacking ourselves. I don't think people are generally very confused about whether they were traumatized. It happens, but rarely. Like, you know, if you were traumatized, you know, sometimes people say, oh, everybody was traumatized. It's like, well, that's not the sense of trauma we're talking about. We're talking about something that causes neurological injury, like major disruption. And it can, you know, it's surprisingly neglect is even more potent than abuse um, in causing neurological disruption. And keep in mind, your neurology governs your whole endocrine system. Like when you get your period, it governs how you metabolize food, it, uh, your blood flow, your, your, uh, vital signs, your, your nervous system governs all things physical and emotional. So when to say you're, you have neurological dysregulation is quite a serious thing. 
And so not all not all things that you could consider trauma would cause that. Even grave trauma doesn't do that to everyone. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's, I don't worry to, you know, if people, if the people who come to my work um, are often, they, you know, we had a video today and I did a video today about being forced to lie about a, abuse, particularly sexual abuse, which I don't talk about very directly. It's very triggering for people who have been sexual abused, sexually abused to talk about it. So I never go into any kind of detail, but I just talk about the fact that you don't, you know, as a child, you were forced to cover for people and that that causes this pattern that makes it really hard to think straight or know yourself or stand up for yourself. There's all these survival techniques that children use, thank goodness, because, you know, it's quite threatening. But to to manage emotionally the the disaster going on around you that then have to be sort of unpacked later. And unpacking it later, the the one thing that people can very quickly identify is the dysregulation. And then sometimes, you know, people get health problems with or without trauma, but there really is quite an elevated risk for people who have trauma. And you might see things like um, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. Uh, those uh, Those are very, very trauma related. And I used to have a lot of uh, uh, migraines, asthma, back pain. Those are some of the things that are common in trauma. And then when I was younger, stomach problems, that's how kids manifest it, a lot of stomach problems. And as you learn to re-regulate, many health problems do clear up because that, you know, maybe not all, like we have bodies, we're mortal, you know, <laughs> but a lot of times it's called somaticizing when it sort of ends up affecting your body. And I had, this is an example I had um, I had a difficult childbirth, my first kid, and I, when I was done having kids, I had some surgery to do some repairs from some of the damage that was done, and something went wrong with that. There was an accident, a medical you know mistake happened, and I ended up needing fourteen major surgeries for that. And it should have only been one major surgery, but every time they tried to do the repair, my body would just break down. It couldn't, you know, the whatever they fixed would always fall apart. It would fall apart. And they escalated it to some of the best surgeons in the world to go, what's going on? And um, they didn't know because trauma is very, still very poorly understood. But eventually I did talk to a doctor uh, who helped me understand what had happened after I healed. <laughs> but they wrote off my case and said, there's nothing you can do. We're going to have to remove your large intestine. I mean, things were just getting worse and from bad to worse. And um and I was in the hospital on and off for about four years and they couldn't understand what was wrong. Well, what was going on in my life is uh, I was going through a divorce. I had two little kids. The 2008 financial meltdown had hit the U.S. and I lost my job. And then when I dated somebody, turns out they had an addiction and then they took their own life. And I was going through so much. And just at that time. I, I just would like to think that doctors would do a better job of saying what's going on. But the thing is, is even if they had, so here's something, the conventional treatment, if you're, you know, what they consider this psychological distress, right? Go to talk therapy. And if that doesn't work in 10 sessions that your insurance covers, get on medication. Well, for people like me, some people benefit from talk therapy, clearly, but I don't, <laughs> I get very dysregulated. You asked me to talk about the trauma in the past. I'll just, you know, I get very dysregulated. And when I'm dysregulated, I can't process information. I can't remember what we talked about really. You know, I'm feeling just sort of numb and la la la. la. <laughs> it's just not really going anywhere. 
And then medication will short circuit the ability to re-regulate. I teach people how to re-regulate. There's very practical things you can do to get re-regulated. And when you're re-regulated, you can do a better job of healing your body when you need to. You can do a better job of noticing when you're hungry or not hungry or tired or uh, need to need to hang out with friends or you know have energy to run outside. And when you're re-regulated, you can also navigate things that are stressful, stressful, like being in an argument with your partner. That's something like if you tend to get dysregulated, a little argument can blow up into such a screaming match. If you know how to re-regulate, you can say, you know what? I feel myself getting dysregulated. Can I take 15 minutes and then come back to this conversation when I'm re-regulated? And any partner who's been through a screaming match would welcome a partner who's, who would actually do something to pull themselves together. So I've had, you know, I've had a lot of practice with this with my husband and it's just been life-changing to know what to do when I'm feeling this, this like, oh, you know, you don't understand me. I'm just very breathless. Everything's dire. You know, I'm dysregulated. I can't read the situation accurately. So two things that characterize complex PTSD um, that were defined by this uh, therapist who has CPTSD named Pete Walker. He, uh, he defined emotional flashbacks. That's a new concept he he published this book in 2014 with it. An emotional flashback is kind of similar to things you've seen in movies about war veterans who come back and they wake up in the middle of the night sweaty and frantic and reliving it all. And then you, and then they go, honey, it's a dream. And they calm down. So an emotional flashback, it's not like you're going back to some war zone or remembering. There's no memory associated it, with it. A lot of times the trauma is before you could form memories. You just wake up with a feeling. You wake up with a bad feeling and um, or it's not necessarily waking up. It could happen anytime something triggers you. You get criticized or a car almost bumps into you and this weird emotional state comes and it's too much. It's an emotional flashback. You can teach yourself to say, oh, I'm having an emotional flashback or, oh, I'm dysregulated. Hold on. Let me follow through a little routine here that helps me come back from that. Because it's the thing we do, it's the stuff we say when we're upset and dysregulated or flat having a flashback that are so destructive to relationships and jobs, I might add. I've done that. I've said things at work that definitely hurt my career when I was in the middle of kind of a freak out. And when you do that, you end up very ashamed. Like I always knew I'm like, something's different about me. The way that I get upset about stuff is more than other people. And it was just something I tried to sort of compartmentalize and hide. And I taught myself not to say anything or not to defend myself. And so it was sort of easy to, I don't know. I, yeah, it was easy for people to kind of cross my boundaries because I had, I was so used to sort of believing that there's something wrong with me and I better not set a boundary because I'm probably nuts, you know, but I wasn't nuts at all. And I just, I, I was confused about, um, why I was feeling so strongly about stuff. So you end up like yelling at somebody. And then an hour later, you're like, oh, why did I do that? I didn't mean at all what I said. So they used to think that people who did that, it's like, oh, it's borderline personality. It's rarely borderline personality, whatever that is. A lot of times it's just dysregulation. And you can teach yourself to come back. When you notice it's happening, come back. Don't try to have a big conversation. Don't use heavy equipment or drive a car. <laughs> And come back, get yourself re-regulated, and then carry on. And soon you're on a level playing field with people who never were traumatized. 
Oh, I'm, I'm, I've got lots of things are bubbling up. So first of all, mm -hmm. I think that um, absolutely what you were saying before, if you've been traumatized, you would know. Uh, absolutely. But it's more the subtle mm -hmm. stuff, the neglecting, the, 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 the neglect, the lack of attention, the lack of uh, love, that kind of uh, trauma that I was thinking about. Um, and so that that's more the, I'm sure there's a lot of us walking around with yeah. um, CPTSD without even actually knowing that's what it is. And we have yeah. these reoccurring patterns. The one thing that I'm really curious about is how do you control when you are flooded with emotions, which we all have those experiences in that moment, you do, it's, it's, it's almost like, well, your prefrontal cortex shuts down, right? So then all of a sudden you're just going and just let it out. And I agree with you. Most of the time you say things that you regret later. And I have practiced being more uh, conscious I call it conscious living, then rather than allowing this autopilot take place and take over. But I still struggle with it at times. So what is that one thing or that trick? What's your trick? Like how do you, when you're in the moment and you're flooded with emotions, what's that thing where you go, I'm consciously aware now that I'm now disre dysregulated? Well, I wish it were as simple as just like one trick, but it takes a lot of self-awareness to start to know your own signs that it's happening, that you're sort of losing touch with yourself. And it's, it's you know, the irony is that you're sort of going unconscious. And so it takes a lot of self-awareness to start going, ah, here it is. And so, you know, in the courses that I teach, it's a lot of like worksheets where you go through and start mapping out when does this happen? When has the bad stuff happened and what triggered that? Now, triggers are interesting. Nowadays, people talk about trigger very broadly. They could mean something that upsets you, right? But I, when I say trigger, I mean something that sets off a neurological phenomenon of dysregulation. And so, uh, you know, getting startled, um, getting overlooked, neglected, yelled at, um, feeling left out, all of these things are common triggers. I could think of hundreds and I have, I've listed like hundreds of triggers, you know, when you raise your hand and no one calls on you, <laughs> when you raise your hand and they do call on you, <laughs> you know, those can trigger, they can trigger dysregulation and, oh, flustered, flustered. I can't think, I can't think. And now, oh, that's even more triggering. What an idiot I am. And, and on comes all the thoughts. And so as those continue, so there's so people have to get to know their own triggers and what happens when they do it. There it's there's an interesting, you know, people people have sort of mapped out some things people do when they're having a trauma response. So one little map, it's fight, flight, freeze or fawn. And there's some other ones, you know, that people have suggested could could be added to that. But those are trauma responses and I would say relationally there's the three trauma responses that I talk a lot about are escape where you just want to go off into fantasy or leave the relationship um, control, which is includes like getting all codependent, trying to make somebody change or not leave and then cling and cling is just, you know, you put up with anything. It's a trauma response to just say, and that's unfortunately, that's a, a, a trauma response that's involved in trauma bonding, which is where somebody treats you bad. They're nice. Sometimes they're mean sometimes. And it just has this like, psychological hook that will just draw you in. And so detoxing from that stuff is it's, I wish it were simple. It's not simple. It takes a lot of self-awareness. And I just always say you need tools that work, not other people's tools that don't work for you, but you need tools that work for you and you need support. It's so important to have people who are walking that path with you 
who you can stay connected with and just like call your friend and just be like, uh, you know, this guy just called me again, but I thought we were broken up and I'm confused and I feel like I have to pretend like we didn't just break up and I'm not sure what's going on. And your friend can say, remember, you didn't want ambiguous relationships. Why don't you text him and ask for clarification on what he's suggesting? And uh, and then call me and we'll decide about your response together. <laughs> Having a friend you can do that with is so helpful because when you're prone to dysregulation, you'll say anything. You'll just go, oh, yeah, okay, guy who's giving me ambiguous signals. Ambiguity is great. I love ambiguity. I'll be right over. And that is exactly, you know, actually getting into sexual relationships while dysregulated is how trauma is passed on generationally. That's how it happens. And so... The whole process of dating, getting to know people, moving slowly, not bonding while you let information come to you is a potent area where people can change their lives after trauma, not having the crazy relationships that are very, very common. Another another really toxic thing for people, though, is just isolation in general. Some people are rushing into relationships. Some people... You know, the people who during lockdown were like, I think this is the great, this is my favorite time of my life ever. Now nobody's dealing with anybody, just how I like to be. <laughs> so some people have that where isolation feels good. And for some people, it basically broke them. But isolation is, uh, it's a it's a trauma symptom. Oh, dear. I relate to this one you said. I was like, I, was like, I, I, I uh, love the isolation. Yeah. Mm. Some do. Some do. People are triggering. And if you don't have healing for trauma, then avoiding people is one way to manage those triggers. But it's a costly one. Yeah. And the consequences with that, that's amazing. I've never made that connection. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one thing I did want to unpack as well was the cluttering. I remember uh, when somebody suggests you've got to get this lady on the show. That was the first video that I was uh, drawn to is about cluttering, decluttering. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, well, it all started when somebody wrote a comment on my YouTube video and said, um, you should talk about cluttering. And I was like, oh, yeah, huh? So in my extended family where trauma is like <laughs> trauma has affected people greatly, I'd say half the people in my family, um, you know, have active like alcoholism or drug addiction. Those are some very outward signs of trauma. There's hoarding. But I'd say we're all kind of cluttery. It's pretty rare that we're not. And so I thought about it. And this is often what I do. I just, you know, I go into my writing and meditation time and I just sort of open my mind like, what is it about that? And I started to write down a list of ways that clutter is expressed. And it's not just like physical clutter in, in our space. It's like mental clutter. All those fearful and resentful thoughts I'm always talking about, it's clutter. And you can't think straight because your thoughts are very burdened with all this extra stuff. You know, you're trying to think like, mm, how will I, um, uh, you know, how will I get the guy to fix my car properly? But on top of that is all this, you know, fear. Nobody ever fixed my car properly. Fear they take advantage of people like me. Fear this happened once in 1982. Fear my mom always told me that women can't take care of cars. Fear I don't know how to take care of cars. Fear I failed the class at school. You know, all these thoughts are just going on and on and on. So, so the interaction with the guy who's supposed to fix your car is burdened with this kind of crazy stuff. And we all know what it's like when somebody is talking to you with that level of tension and sort of mental chaos. It feels like, whoa, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're too much for me. You're accusing me of things I didn't do. And it's true. 
And so we don't want to be that person. And that's, that's that mental clutter. Like when you can learn to like bring it down through the techniques, anything that starts bringing your thoughts down into just clarity, lucidity, then you can express yourself. And so another type of clutter is relationship clutter is we keep people in our lives that we don't really want in our lives, or we think we need them, or we think we have, we're obliged to them, or but we don't really want them and it's cluttered. And so, for example, if somebody's looking to get into a great relationship, but they have ex-boyfriends all over the place, that great relationship is less likely to happen. There's a clutter going on there. And a healthy person is not very drawn to somebody who is, uh, you know, surrounded by exes all the time. I just, I just uh, yesterday recorded an answer to a letter I got from a woman who was dating a man who had all his exes in his life, including one he was still just completely sad about. And he was always talking to her on the phone when our letter writer would arrive to go cook him dinner. And he'd be like, can you go outside for 10 minutes? We're having this incredibly important conversation processing what happened in our breakup two years ago. So of course, I'm, you know, I was like, this guy, forget this guy. He's not emotionally available. He's cluttered. (laughs) He's cluttered. And then the woman who thinks she has to deal with him, she's cluttered with all this all these beliefs that she better take what she can get, that that she's actually being puritanical by not being okay with him having this very complicated, you know, drawn out relationship with his ex, you know, she's cluttered. Nobody can really operate freely. So we get rid of all that old stuff so that we can just go, we know what we're looking for. We know what kind of person would be really nice to be with. We can recognize what those characteristics are when somebody doesn't have them, then they wouldn't be good to date. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? If you just didn't date them, then you could date people who were awesome for you. And that's, it's sometimes it's a, it's simple in the, in the, in the diagram. It's hard to change into the person who can pull it off, but it can be done. <laughs> I love that. And cause I mean, decluttering it's for me, I just went through decluttering and it was quite cathartic. And some of the stuff that I threw out so much stuff, but even right. some of the stuff that I was looking through, I was like, I don't can't even relate to that Catherine anymore. So it was, it, it was, um, it was really, uh, I felt like it was a very spiritual practice letting go of all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So for, you know, I sort of put out a hypothesis in that video that, you know, people often will say when you clutter, you can make yourself feel happier. And I, I do think that's true. But also clutter is it's just a it's a symptom of tra- traumatized people are cluttery. Not everybody, but it's a I think it's very prevalent. And our outward space is a reflection of our inward state. That's that's kind of true. There's another type of clutter is time clutter too. calendar like calendar clutter, where there's a bunch of stuff you're doing out of obligation, but you never feel like you have time. So it's like the calendar equivalent of having all this junk in your space. And, uh, and that's really like a lot of, I think that, uh, for a lot of women, like once, once you are old enough to be seen as very competent, people will start asking a lot of you and you get very cluttered unless you start learning to be choosy about what you say yes to. (laughs) So I'm guessing, uh, Anna, that you've become really good with boundaries, setting boundaries. I try. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Better. Yeah. So, because I know for me, it's one of those practices that I'm, um, and it goes back to, I don't know if, if um, what your thoughts are around um, attachment theory, because um, I'm very much avoidant. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wonder how that's linked into uh, PTSD. 
Well, I think it's a it's a it's an overlay and attachment styles. They certainly seem to be valid. I can I can see it. So there's this mythological state called secure attachment, <laughs> and whatever that is, I don't have it. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm getting a little more secure. I've been I've been with my husband for 15 years, and you know, married for almost 10. And the first part of our marriage, my insecurities were really up. Like I thought getting married would like fix all that. I had it in my mind. Once you're married, then all of that is behind you, like wondering if they love you, but it didn't go away. Cause you know, it's, it's a lot of it I'm carrying in here. And, um, and, you know, we're just people, people have to work a lot out. And, and so, <laughs> yeah, I forgot where are we going with this? Um, about attachment styles. So insecure attached. I literally was abandoned as a kid quite a lot. And so that it's been taking me a long time to settle down into feeling secure. Like I'm not going to get abandoned. I feel very secure in my marriage. And I can also, I'm very good at like giving security or, you know, I always am much improved in giving security. Like I don't make threats like I used to. In younger days, that's a lot what I used to do because when I got um, super dysregulated in in an argument with emotions high and reasoning down, what I what I would believe is my thoughts that would go, see, you know, love is not real. This is bullshit. I got to get out. I got to run. <laughs> I'm just like cycling through all the trauma responses. And so I would say very harsh things and just be like, this whole thing is stupid. You never loved me anyway. I I never loved you anyway. I'm leaving. And then an hour later, I'd be totally sorry. And that's a terrible destructive cycle. It's emotional abuse, in fact. So it had to stop and it had to stop. And I had to learn how to um, re- restrain pen and tongue when I could t- detect signs of dysregulation. It's not the time to make pronouncements about the relationship and generally speaking, I have a rule of thumb that if I have something dramatic to say, it can wait a day. <laughs> there's there's nothing except like fire, <laughs> you know, or impending peril that has to be talked about today. And if you wait a day, for me, in my case, a lot of it just evaporates by tomorrow. Some things do have to be worked on just like anything. It's real. But when I can wait and not be dysregulated, I'm capable of a really good mature conversation. So less and less am I dysregulated anymore because I don't, my life circumstances just, when your life gets better, you're, you're not re-traumatizing yourself so much. You know, you're not dating some jerk or, you know, (laughs) uh, you you can get out of self-defeating behavior. I teach a lot about self-defeating behaviors that are common and that's what it has. It has to do with like, you know, be feeling drawn to troubled people, black and white thinking, self-neglect, you know, these things they pile up and they make it really hard. They make everything hard, money problems, everything piles up. So I recommend to people like work on the thing that's right in front of you that you feel like you can do something about. Like, let's say you're dating somebody horrible, but you do know how to get out of debt, get out of debt. And that makes a space in front of you to take your next positive move. You don't have to, there's no way anybody can take it all on at once because it's a lot but yeah. moving in a positive direction. <laughs> yeah. And I love the way that you say one step at a time, because it is, I mean, there's so much to it. It sounds very complex, Anna. And so when you were talking about isolation and avoidance uh, in relationship, I was like, oh, how that must be very linked into PTSD in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I think, you know, there's a, it's a fuzzy line. Like some people are introverted and that's their nature. Some people are avoidant and that's a wound. Some people are on the Asperger's spectrum and that's the way they're built. And there's, so there's, you know, a lot of people have different things going on. And to some degree, we have to just kind of accept and love ourselves and then work on the things. The really important things to work on are the things that push other people away um, and that cause us to um, attack ourselves. That doesn't do any good. But one thing, there are certain conventional wisdom things for normal people that don't always apply to somebody who's working with a trauma wound. And it's like, I can't tell you how many times people have said, you just need to love yourself before you can love somebody else. And I just be like, what are you even talking about? That's not really like useful advice for somebody who's in trauma. Like, oh, okay, I'll just love myself then. Like, you can't just like leap right to that. And um but you can you can start to unpack you can start to work on the trauma wound directly, which starts to give you all these benefits of like more ability to be accepting, a more a greater sense of gratitude, um, greater self respect, you know, greater sensitivity to other people's feelings. When you start to develop those capacities through getting free of your fearful, resentful thinking, then other things start to go better. So you're sort of you know, life is such an improvisation with so many different things going on, but gradually it gets a little better here, a little better there. And then your self-esteem comes up and you're stronger and you start to get momentum. And then you finally are on the road to being who you really are, who you really are without the trauma. I love that. And you know, it, it is, I see a, a lot of people using breath work for trauma. What are your thoughts about that? Because I see that a lot. People, there's, it's kind of like a buzz thing at the moment. Well, I feel like people should do whatever is helpful to them. So if people are finding that helpful, great. But something like breath work for me is, um, I just would say it's not strong enough. It's not strong enough. And so I have to breathe. <laughs> if I weren't breathing, I'd be dead. And sometimes I take deep breaths, you know, because it's nice to do that. But it's not enough to actually fix my trauma wounds. But it's a positive thing, as is exercise, getting out in the sunshine, eating nutritious food. These are all good things. But I think sometimes they're promoted as the solution for trauma by people who don't actually have trauma and don't realize like those are all good. And and they, they create a good backdrop for any type of positive thing that you're trying to do. But actually like changing that neurological dysregulation is uh, that I, I do feel that some tools are usually necessary. That, that really get in there and help you work that brain brain and neurology thing. I feel like um, it, it's that whole re-regulation is the, the key to everything else, you know, you know, because it's so complex. It's like, where do you begin? And I, I know people say, but that takes a lot of time and effort and consciousness and too much work, but it's, it's, it sounds like it all goes back to that re-regulation. Is that correct? Well, I think that if you, if you can't stay regulated, you can't do much. You're not going to succeed professionally or in relationships. You know, you're going to have a lot of problems. So if you do one thing, learning to re-regulate starts to set the stage for you to solve. Like I see it as you have neurological wounds. You, you work on those and start to get that stronger. And then you can start to take on life's problems, like what to do about money or who shall you date? Those are things you can't really do. For me, I can't even talk to a therapist if I don't know how to re-regulate. So just throwing me into therapy ended up being really toxic. But that was just, people didn't understand it at the time. So now we know, now we know. And some therapists are very aware of that and they, they have non-talking ways to help you with problems. 
Yeah, I even like the fact that you initially when you started saying that you started drawing pictures because that's uh, it's really uh, sometimes things are really hard to put into words and quite complex, but putting it into picture makes it or ever so different when you're trying to express, you know, for example, I mean, I do this in one of my classes where I'll say, if you were to describe to a five-year-old what is your role you, and draw it, not using words, that's a very different, you're using a different part of your brain, but it's it's very uh different in a way that you would go ahead and describe it. Yeah, I would imagine that's true. Mm. So uh, in the essence of time, I know that uh, your time is very valuable. Well, the way that we love to wrap up the show, we always love to ask our guests to leave three shiny golden nuggets or three practical exercises. What would be those three practical exercises that you would like to share with your audience? Well, Um, I would encourage people to start learning about what their signs of dysregulation are. One thing I can give you is a link to a quiz that lists signs of dysregulation and emergency measures to re-regulate. So you'll see some of that there. But when you start to notice, like my cue is my nose feels numb when I'm getting dysregulated. So if I'm talking to my husband and I'm starting to get a little intense and my nose feels numb, I know, pause. Don't try to have this conversation right now. Get re-regulated. And I take whatever time I need and I make an appointment with him 20 minutes later to, can I continue this conversation then? So pause, make a time when you'll return to the conversation and then use that time to get re-regulated. That is a game changer. Um, Another thing you can do just for emergency measures for getting re-regulated is to wash your hands. Now, like, you know, you could take a shower, a hot shower, a cold shower, that will help your nervous system kind of go, whoa, I'm back. Or if you are just not in a situation where you can jump in the shower, you can wash your hands warm, like very, very warm water or cold water and something, anything that increases your tactile sensation to come back, like washing your hands with soap and just kind of taking a minute to just enjoy the soap and water will help bring you back a little bit. And then um, another thing that I think is completely overlooked is movement exercising to the point that your heart rate comes up is probably the best thing you can do for healing trauma and coming out of depression and coming out of a anxious and stuck place is to get moving. If you can do that outside, that's especially good. And if you can do that with other people, that is also good where um, let's say a teacher in a yoga class or a dance class or martial arts is saying, all right, now, you know, right kick and, (laughs) and everybody kick does a right right front kick at the same time for whatever reason that is especially regulating like kicking your feet is good but hearing somebody say right using your right leg and doing it with other people there's i have there's i don't think this theory is very well backed up yet but i think we all intuitively know like our we have a unique nervous system that's our own but we're sort of part of a greater nervous system with other people especially when they're physically near and we co-regulate with each other. So when somebody's freaking out in your presence, it stresses you out. When somebody's calm in your present, it calms you. This is very important for parenting. This is a lot what you can do for kids is learn to re-regulate. Your kids will match you, uh, hopefully, unless there's something something else going on. So those are my three tips is pause when you know you're dysregulated and don't try to keep fighting wash your hands or do something tactile to bring yourself back to your body and then go outside and move. 
I love all three of them. And I love the, um, I remember uh, we had a guest on the show. She does a, a somatic dance and healing. And she was talking about how trauma and emotions get caught in the body. And we don't, we underestimate how powerful movement is. Uh, and yet, especially, especially nowadays, there's so many people, including myself, it's behind the desk all the time because since COVID, everything's, I used to do a lot of traveling. Now I do a lot of virtual stuff and it's happening to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Uh, yeah, it's definitely affected how much I move. I have to make more of an effort to move around because I'm not out there walking to the train. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Anna, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where do you hang out? I know YouTube and we'll have all of that. Is that where you yes. hang out the most? Uh, YouTube is certainly my biggest presence. I also have a website, crappychildhoodfairy.com, where you can find all my courses and um, free materials. I have a free tools page where you can find the quizzes and the and the free course that I was talking about, as well as other programs that cost money. And I have um, my first book coming out in October, 2024. And that will uh, outline my unique philosophy and techniques for overcoming trauma. Beautiful. I was about to ask you, I did look for a book, actually. I was about to ask you, you should uh, write a book. I mean, but fantastic. I'll be looking forward to that coming out. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll have all that in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Like I said, we've never covered this topic before. So it was interesting to hear uh, from your perspective, um, very different. And uh, I'm sure people are going to reach out. So thank you once again for the great work that you do in the world. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please click on share show with your friends to help make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to get involved is to click on follow show or leave a review on iTunes so that we can give you a shout out on the show. If you have been a long time listener of the show, you know we are big on delivering content that is valuable for you. Content that will address your pain points. So if you have any questions or ideas for a podcast show, please reach out and we will create the content to meet your needs. Yes, you heard right. If you have topics, themes or or special guests that you want to hear from, please send us a note to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will create a show especially for you. Wherever you are in the world, sending you love, blessings and peace. Namaste. Namaste.